it's another magical bone relic. <laughs> Yay! episode 38 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Mr. Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon for only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon and gain access to our patrons-only group chat. Support from our patrons helps us to produce the show and goes towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do so by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. Although, funnily enough tonight, it's just you and me, Dan. Just you and me. (laughs) It's been a while since we've had a a two-man show, but it's not honestly a, a problem. Like it's nice sometimes to just have a, <laughs> a, I guess, a more direct conversation. So that's what we're going to yes. have tonight. More, more intimate. <laughs> just you, me, and the listeners. Ah. So yeah, um, tonight is lo and behold, it's another campaign supplement because was a yeah. victorious book two. Critical Mass has already made its way here. In fact, it's already been around for a couple of weeks now, I think, um, since it actually landed in people's hands. But, you know, as is the way of reviewing these things, take until now before we could actually get a recording together for it. Yeah, they've been uh, pretty quick with these, haven't they? Pretty speedy, if you will. (laughs) They have indeed. Speedy and sneaky. Hmm. Because like, I don't think they even announced this book in advance of when they just said it's up for pre-order next week. <laughs> I think that was the first we heard uh, of this. No. One. They certainly didn't kind of uh, give us a big thing about it in advance like normal. Which I just wonder whether or not it's um, anything to do with the realigning of the release schedule post crisis, as it were. But who knows? I mean... Funnily enough, um, the Custodes and GSE got pushed back till um, yeah. the start of next year now, didn't they? Which is fair enough and understandable, you know. Um, so I'm sure I'm sure another book probably won't be that far behind, to be honest. <laughs> Even though we have no yeah. idea what it would be as yet. And presumably it might be a new war zone by the time it arrives. Yeah, interesting. I wonder what will be next. Hmm. But in the meantime, we are still in the Octarius sector, so uh, this Yay. is going to be our 
Yeah, this is going to be our review episode of Awards on Octarius Book 2 Critical Mass. And it is a good old um, Orcs v Nids mashup, really, is this one. Yay. There are no actual rules for Nids in here. They were all in the first book. Instead, it's yeah. a lot of Orc rules, actually, in this one. And then, funnily enough, Rogue Traders. Yes. Uh, just a little sprinkling of Rogue Trader stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's funny that this book doesn't actually contain any um, reprinted rules from the Psychic Awakening series. You know, none of these index things for, like, you know, Heretic Astartes or um, no. like the Tyranny of Double the Bowel stuff reprinted in the previous book. But instead, we've got, um, like, the Rogue Trader Kill Team stuff reprinted in here, as it were, and well, sort of updated. Actually, it's, it's not. It's uh, from what I understand, it's it's quite different. Uh, the set of rules oh, sorry, for these. Yeah. In, in terms, yeah, I suppose it, it reprinted was the wrong uh, sort of yeah. phrase there. Like these are up to date rules for those models, as it were. Yeah, um, it's very it's very strange, to... given that mm. in the previous one they had basically reprints of all the Inquisition stuff from uh, Psychic Waking, which themselves were basically reprints of. Inquisition stuff from White Dwarf. Yeah, and funnily enough, the Gellapox Infected are actually absent from this mm. publication, which being the other half of the sort of yeah. kill team road trader stuff, those are wondering whether or not they might have appeared, but they've not, so they've clearly kind of become their own thing now. They've really come into their own as the Astra Cartographer, you know, branch of the Imperium. Yeah. So we're going to dive a little bit into some of the rules for those on Crusade um, later tonight. Um, but other than that, we've got uh, we've got a campaign system to review in this book. We've got a range of legendary missions, which is something that the previous book did not have. Um, mm-hmm. And then Le- we've got so go. As legendary missions are kind of a, a classic um, narrative wargamer podcast staple, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I love a good legendary mission. Some of the more obscure and um, interesting missions uh, pop up in these legendary instances. Um, I may have certain plans for them to appear in some kind of event pack in the near future together. (laughs) But that's all hush-hush for now. Okay. Um, Total secrecy. My lips are sealed. Just like the Octarius Sector. Quite. Um, but then we have also got uh, a new army of renown for the Speed Freaks, uh, which we are going to cover tonight because okay. it's an interesting one. And I mean, we're both Orc players here tonight, but yep. of the two of us, I feel like I'm probably going to be the one more likely to dip my toe in the Speed War. Yes. Um, correct. Um, and then interestingly, we also have Crusade rules. Um, not so much to the extent of like for the campaign system this time, but more um, mini on Crusade sections for the Astra Cartography Guild, as it were, and um, the altered loot. Altered loot? No, the Orc looted vehicles have remained <laughs> their return. From uh, I think the last iteration was chapter approved a few years ago. Yes, that, I think they were in White Dwarf, but. They've returned now to us once and more, but this time as yep. uh, Crusade elements for Orcs, which 
I actually think is probably one of the better fits they've had in recent years. Fair. Which we'll, we'll get on to. So yeah, um, as is usually the case with our sort of like main book reviews, we're not going to bother with a Pin Station Garrison or a Games Played section this week as there's a lot to get through. Um, and actually last episode we had a pretty decent Games Played section where me and Chris um, discussed our our games at the Bash Invitational and Dave told us about his impromptu crusade for his Rainbow Warriors. So Nice. Uh, if you haven't listened to that already, it's, go check it out. It's a it's a good one. And then you get to hear Dave and Chris go head-to-head in the latest 40k fun facts. Ooh. <laughs> part 1 of Octarius. And as fun as it was, I have to say, Octarius Part 2 is going to be even more fun. <laughs> when Excellent. It comes to the, uh, the fun facts, because there is some particularly hilarious stuff that goes on when we get detailed descriptions of conflicts between Tyranids and Orcs. Love it. I can tell you that the uh, the name game is indeed going to be an orc-based one, and I think I have approximately 30-plus real ridiculous <laughs> names at the moment that I'm going to have to trim and then pad out with fake ones. Yeah. I mean, there's always the they're all real option. I honestly genuinely considered doing that for, uh, for this version, just be like, here's 30 questions. Are any of them false? No. Just listen to this list of ridiculousness. Love it. <laughs> but yes, um, I mean, it certainly seems that people are enjoying it, as uh, we have also got a brand new patron since the last show. So, Hooray! Yes, a, a big thank you to <sighs> Nusfigor. I apologise if I got that name wrong. Dan has been teaming up for it all day. Because <laughs> we... It was not the easiest one, so much so that even Google didn't really appreciate it and wasn't sure what to do with it. So, um, yes, welcome welcome to the Patreon pals, Newsfee. We hope you enjoy it. And um, please drop us a message to tell us how to pronounce your name <laughs> so that I can get it right in future. <laughs> so are we going to have to have an announcement next time that we've lost a Patreon? Uh, I hope not. Or maybe we just have another announcement once we have a phonetic pronunciation. <laughs> we, uh, we re-announce it. Nice. But no, um, thanks for that. Uh, it's highly appreciated and um, it is really starting to sort of get some traction now as the Patreon and the, the support is now actually paying for the podcast. It has got to the point where it is self-sustaining. It, is, it has, as you could say, reached critical mass. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah any anything anything more now really is going to start help improving you know like production quality and assets and resources and all sorts of things so yeah it's uh it's wonderful and for that our patrons do get to go listen to our bonus episodes uh, that we have over on patreon and although we haven't recorded it yet i think we have got an interesting new one coming up soon we've not recorded it yet but there are plans hopefully to do a uh a bonus episode where we have a like a film club review of Angels of Death. Now that it's all out, I actually watched the last episode today, and I now plan to go back and rewatch it all and make some furious notes <laughs> in order to discuss it in a future bonus Patreon episode. Because I, I mean, obviously spoilers. It was great. I, I don't Overall, think that's really a spoiler. <laughs> well, spoiler for my review, I suppose. 
<laughs> yeah, I liked it. Well done. Uh, but it'll be more in depth on that in the future. So yeah, uh, when it when it's out there, um, all our patrons will be able to enjoy it. So something to look forward to. However, in the meantime, I think we're going to have to jump now into our main topic for tonight, or at least the first part of it. Because as I say, there is a critical mass of information to get through. So why don't we get started? <laughs> I will keep making this joke throughout the night. Okay, okay. <laughs> and we're back, guys. So this is now going to be the first part of our look at Warzone Octarius Book 2, Critical Mass. So, as always, a little forward just to let you guys know what we are not going to be covering tonight. And actually, this is one of the instances where there's very little that we're not covering. And so, as is typically our MO, we're not going to bother covering the codex, the codex supplement. Even though, in this case, it is orcs, and I'm sure me and Dan could enjoy talking about blood axes. Uh, I'm also sure gets. There are, oh, yeah, <laughs> they are. But I'm also sure that they've infiltrated their way into many other shows and podcasts at this point, and there will be plenty of uh, other places that you can go listen to a full breakdown of the Codex Supplement. Um, equally, we're not going to go in-depth on the actual datasheet rules for the Astra Cartographer, um, as basically it's rules for a Rogue Trader and a Squad of Guardsmen. They are interesting, they have some um, interesting stratagems and gear, but basically it's bringing a fancy character with some fancy guns slash swords and some stratagems to throw out some mortal wounds. That's your lot, basically. It's cool, they're great, don't want to disparage from them, but there's a lot of just information to get through that basically sums up like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm sure, again, there will be some other um, like content creators out there that will give you a more in-depth breakdown. I know, for one, that the... Um, Lookout Sir podcast did a very extensive breakdown of all the Astra Cartographer stuff so if you can't find it anywhere else go check them out, there's a full breakdown on their show we will however cover the Rogue Traders on Crusade because that's where they have some really interesting stuff that we'd be interested in so we will get to them a bit later otherwise though we're basically going to talk about everything else because there's a slew of interesting stuff in here. First up, we have the Octarius system campaign. So, as with all of these campaign system, as uh, campaign supplements so far, they have come complete with their own campaign system in them, and this one is actually basically identical in concept to the book one of the Octaria system. So it's a campaign tree system that has uh, multiple stages and then a campaign has multiple phases of trees. Um, you've got alliances, a campaign master, war zone points at the end of each phase that amass into strategic points at the end of the campaign to work out who has won. And this, in this instance, we've got three alliances, which is actually the orcs as the defenders, tyranids as the attackers, and the agents of disruption as everybody else. But as always, <laughs> they are purely guidelines 
just for making up the rough narrative of Octarius when in actual fact there are many narrative reasons why any faction could be involved in any of these runs. I, I do like that um, everyone else notably the Imperium gets thrown into the, the, the bucket faction of people doing their own thing like, yeah, basically, people it's not about you, Imperium. Yeah, <laughs> they they genuinely are the people on the outside looking in in a li- very literal sense this time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's funny how they sort of sum it up as uh, in like the editorial note that you could easily have two players playing as Death Watch or you know Inquisition or whatever. And one of them could be an agent of disruption, and one of them could be an attackers because like that particular inquisitor or um uh, what the death watch keep has decided that the tyranids n- need support right now uh-huh. as it were, and, and that yeah. they're attempting to disrupt the orcs more than anything so actually their goals tend to be more aligned with supporting the actions of the hive fleet it's like yeah. not that they're working with the hive mind but they're you know they're not actively working against them at that moment in time so i mean i mean that that could be Kripman, couldn't it it could indeed be criminal. Um, so, as with the previous book, there's no theatres of war, like rules, like environmental stuff related to um, this particular campaign. In mm-hmm. fact, most of the Octarius environmental stuff has been in the White Dwarf Flashpoints recently. Which yeah. Will be a future episode. Who wants to talk about here? In fact, there's a particular mission in the latest White Dwarf, which is hilarious but that is for another day oh oh um what we do have is like the previous uh, book there are a number of victory bonuses in here so there's an, another 36 new victory bonuses which are assigned to each battle in each branch of the tree campaign and right. then those become cumulative over the phases so by the end of the last phase all the alliances have a ton of uh, victory bonuses between them that will be impacting how their players play their games. Now, the two sort of noticeable differences between the tree campaign in this book and the one in the previous one is that um, there are five phases in the like pre-written campaign as opposed to three. Okay. And each phase has four battles in it instead of three. But the right. difference is that the fourth battle is always one of the five legendary missions. Okay. So game one branches into um, two potential games for game two. Um, stage two branches into three potential games for branch three. But then all three of those games, regardless of their outcome, you will play the legendary mission for that stage of the campaign afterwards as the fourth game. Nice. So it's a nice way of uh, scattering these like uh, linchpin moments in the narrative um, throughout the campaigns. Like as the smaller battles are occurring, there is then you know the battle on uh, Bad Squig, or then <laughs> there's the one on Dakazot, and so on. You know, like and you play everyone plays that legendary mission. Um, it, it sounds to me like this is a uh, intended to be a a larger campaign for well obviously larger in terms of number of games but uh, larger for like a larger group of people rather than the previous one seemed like it could be played in a small group or even just to, with two people 
Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think the uh, Rising Tide uh, campaign tree system was actually the best environment we've seen so far in Activision for a 1v1 campaign. Yeah. Um, and I think this one, just by virtue of its scale, is more aimed at like your gaming yeah. club. You know, this is meant to run over potentially five months. I think that's um, uh, quite possibly like narratively intended because uh, the previous one was like the Imperium making little precise attacks on the edge of the system, right, or the edge of the um, sector, uh, and and this one is the big fight in the middle. This is the main Pretty event, much, yeah. right? Orcs against Tyranids. Yeah, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, and what is interesting is that, as with the previous book, they've created an example of a pre-written campaign for both a five-phase crusade campaign and a five-phase matched play campaign. Interesting. So, you know, your missions one, two, and three um, in the crusade campaign are all taken from, you know, crusade mission packs, whereas your match play one is all taken from like the Eternal War mission options. So it's not necessarily all the GT missions, but it's huh. the, you know, primaries of secondaries style gameplay that has permeated ninth editions match play. Yeah. But then interestingly, that means that the legendary missions are obviously designed to fit both styles of play. Interesting. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to these shortly because the next thing we're going to talk about really, but what's really interesting about it is that the missions themselves are not so out there that you couldn't put them in front of people who've only ever played match play and they think, what the hell is this? You know, this looks absurd. <laughs> they right. actually look like relatively digestible mission concepts. Yeah. And they do have unique primary objectives for how you would score typically up to a sort of around 45-50 VP mark and if you're playing it as a crusade mission then you wouldn't use secondaries, you would pick agendas but if you're playing it as a match play legendary mission, you actually do pick your secondaries like you do normally to go alongside the mission's primary Yeah. so it's funny when we're seeing missions like we'll talk about shortly on like Bad Squig, but where you could also be contemplating taking um, like engaging all fronts. These quite strategic concepts of hmm. you know victory point scoring in a mission where it's a very unconventional primary method of scoring. Interesting. So what we're saying is we've got, in addition to narrative stuff in this very narrative section of the book, we also have potentially five new uh, like match play missions that you could play match play just <laughs> if you want yeah. like, uh, just a different mission right people yeah, have been theory. complaining about how the, the GT pack is very samey for quite some time so here you go here's five match play missions off you go yeah which are indeed very different to sort of like the GT standard but they're not so different to feel like you're playing a bespoke mission for a historic period of time, you know, or, a yeah. or a historic period in time. Even. I mean, it'd be interesting to see someone say run a match play, uh, like two day event. You know, five games over two days. 
with five these five legendary missions. Yeah, it would be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, we'll so we'll jump onto them in a minute. But then there are two um, additional campaign master edicts that are revealed that are suggested as options in here, which um, are pretty straightforward. So we don't need to spend a ton of time on them. But basically, one of them. It's called full scale bombardment, and basically, it's a it's a system where if the campaign master wants it to be in effect for a phase or a stage or a single game, it can be. And it basically equates to semi persistent bombardment attacks based on the power level of the HQ units you have on the field. Okay. And they're basically pointing at stuff and you know designating targets for artillery. And it, it, it's, you know, there's a little dice off and the, the point where you've picked might be moved a couple of inches based on the dice off result and then units have been three inches so they'll potentially like D3 more. It's not a cool. huge thing, but it's like, you know, every turn, um, depending on the power level of get X many turns, been able to denote some targets. Fair enough. So. But then there is also uh, edicts called critical missions. Which is basically, again, if the campaign master decides, they could denote that something is a critical mission. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for everyone. They could just say that for X Alliance this week, all their games are designated because maybe they're the underdog currently. And they could do with a you know potential um, bonus to try and work towards. Um, and basically all it is is there's six different critical missions. Uh, so it's a D6 table or campaign master will probably just dictate. Um, and it gives an extra objective to achieve. Okay. So, for example, eliminate commanders. Uh, this critical mission is successful if all enemy character models have been destroyed by the end of the battle. So just make sure the enemy has no characters left. You could lose the game. They could have everything else alive in their army, but if you destroyed all their characters, you've completed your critical mission. Okay. Uh, what does that get and for you? So the reward is mostly the same for all of them. There's like one little switch based on if you're playing Crusade. But basically, they all reward one bonus Warzone point, which is the points used to determine which alliance wins that phase of the campaign. Yeah. So even if you lose or draw your mission, you might... If you were to lose your game but complete your critical mission, you would still net two Warzone points for your alliance yeah. rather than one. So that's good. Then, depending on which mission you've completed, there's a reward for Crusade games. So, for example, this one is you get to pick an additional unit to max greatness. Okay. Um, but there's one one of them, like Salvage Data, uh, if you complete that one, in your next battle, you get to select an additional agenda. So you could have, like, four agendas on the go in a 2,000-point cool. game. Um, there's one where if you complete Hold the Line you just gain an additional requisition point. Okay. Always useful. But what is interesting is, again, a slight denotion for matched player campaigns. So if you were playing a match play campaign and your campaign master decided he wanted to issue a critical mission to you or your alliance or everyone, yep. um, if you complete your critical mission, then in your next matched player campaign game, you generate an additional command point at the start cool. of your first command phase. Fair enough. Which, like, it's a small thing, but it's funny to see a persistent reward 
very much play scenario. Yeah. Because I won my game last time against X opponent, I get an extra command point against this opponent now. Yeah. Which I think in the grand schemes of things is a nice way of adding just a slight little easy to remember reward. Because it's always the same for all of them. So, you know, if you're playing your match play campaigns, you don't have to have an order of battle, you don't have to have experience. You just know that if you completed what effectively was a tertiary objective last game, then you've got an extra command point this game. Yeah, that's not going to totally overbalance a game and ruin it for people who are playing match play. Yeah, presumably with the intent of it being fairly balanced. Yes. But, uh, so I think yeah, it's, it's nice. It's quite an elegant little system. And yeah, um, in terms of the campaign mechanics, that's all of it. Because I say it's basically the same concept as the previous book. Tree system, tree per phase, victory bonuses for every mission, and they all accumulate towards a big conflict at the end. Except that in this case, there's five phases and there's an extra mission every phase, i.e. the legendary missions. Yes. Speaking of which... Speaking of which... We will now go through them all one by one. Now, in terms of the narrative, um, these five missions are meant to represent the five major conflicts that occur in the actual Octarius star system itself at the centre of the Octarius subsector. Okay. So this is where the Overfiend himself you know, has his great bastion of orcs, and this is when High Fleet Leviathan, led by the Swarm Lord, are basically trying to take over the system. Cool. There's the, there's even a lovely like little star map in here of the system and the tendril as it approaches and how it deals with each of the planets. Think sort of like I think solar war sort of thing. You know, this is an invasion yeah. of a single solar system. Um, in this case, the Octarius solar system. And um, the Swarm Lord, he, he's a what's the name of the planet? Octarius, of course. There, he's <laughs> heading for Octarius. <laughs> I was like, "What's the main planet at the at the, it's the last mission? It's on Octaria." <laughs> nice. So uh, the first mission is on Bad Squig. <laughs> um, in fact, let me let me bring up the mission map, or am I going to spoil information for the? Well, yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to go too in depth in case I spoil stuff for. Um, Facts, but that's the concept. <laughs> so, yeah. So the uh, the first planet is Bad Squig, and uh, this is where um, the Tyranids are first sort of seen to start overthrowing um, the Orc defenders, and you know starting to gain the advantage. And the mission is called Break the Stalemate. So it's it's a pretty standard map in terms of deployment. So it's long table edges. 10 inches from the center line, so you've got a 20-inch no-man's land, and five objective markers. Does that sound pretty standard so far? Yes. Yeah. However, the five objective markers are all deployed in a straight line, 12 inches apart, right down the center line of the battlefield. Okay. And that is no-man's land center line, so none of these are in the deployment zones. Right. So it really is a big fight for the middle. 
Yeah, it, it's meant to literally be like a shifting front lines sort of engagement. And the whole point of it is that you're trying to essentially engage in a sort of like tug of war scenario where you're trying to force ground. Like you are just trying to push, you know, those extra <laughs> six feet or whatever, you know, to really just <laughs> advance the line each time. Um, and it is going to be a, like a full line of scrimmage almost, you know, sort of like <laughs> sports ball style. <laughs> um, so we've got uh, basically most of these missions have one or two special rules in effect um, in addition to how you actually score. So in this case we've got um, war from horizon to horizon. So strategic reserve units cannot be set up in your opponent's deployment zone. Sure. Okay. So anything that does come on is going to be either coming on from a table edge, like the like short table edges, um, or from your own back airline, but it's not going to appear in the opponent's deployment zone. Yeah. Fair enough. Maybe not a big issue when all the objectives are in the middle of the table anyway. So the other special rule we have in effect for this mission is called grinding front lines. So this is, if both players have units with objective secured, within range of an objective marker, neither player controls the marker. So it's not that it reverts to count the number of models because you've both got obsec units. It's literally, it's that contested, no one has it. Right. So if, if you've got an obsec unit versus non-obsec, then you control it. I think even in the case of if you've got two units that are not obsec, it would go to the player who has the most models. But if there's two obsec units there, it's that contested that no one's counted as having it, regardless of number of models. Okay. So holding these objectives is going to be a real tussle because even obsec is not really going to help you against other obsec. Right. But counterpoint. Obsec is going to help you against someone with more obsec. I suppose, yes. <laughs> if you've got five obsec versus twenty obsec, you're both as useless at holding the objective. Quite. <laughs> um, so then, here's the real sort of interesting mechanic that's involved. If a player controls an objective marker at the start of their command phase, they can move that objective marker up to six inches directly towards their opponent's battlefield edge. Okay. But a marker can never move more than six inches away from the center line. So if you imagine it, kind of like these objective markers are moving on like um, points on a board. Yeah. Each objective marker can only be either on the center line or one six inch instance away from it in either direction. Yeah. And the aim is you're trying to push the front line, so you're trying to move the objective marker closer to the opponent's deployment edge, so you're gaining ground. So the primary way of scoring this mission is that at the end of each player's command phase, the player whose turn it is scores five victory points for each of the following conditions, up to a maximum of 15 points. You know, so far, so far match play. If you control one or more objective markers, score five victory points. If two or more objective markers are closer to your opponent's battlefield edge than their own, you score five victory points. And if three or more objective markers are closer to their opponent's battlefield edge than their own, you score five victory points. Hmm. Now, 
you score these points at the end of your command phase and right. the grinding fronts rule where you move the marker is at the start of the command phase. Yes. So the point is that basically at the start of your turn you kick the objective six inches away from you yep. and then score and then five score points. points. Be yeah. But what it does mean is that it's interesting then to get control of it again because you've now kicked it six inches probably behind the unit you're in combat with. Yeah. So you're then trying to push forwards again, you know, and get back to holding it because you still score five points every turn for controlling one or more markers. Yes. And importantly, if the opponent has kicked them towards your edge, then at the start of your turn, you can kick it back to the center line. Yeah. Uh, and you would want to, because otherwise your opponent will score points without having to do anything. Yes, because you don't have to control the ones that are closer to the opponent's edge, you just yeah. have to be closer. But obviously controlling them is going to prevent the opponent from being able to push them back. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's one of those ones where I think it's it maybe sounds more complicated than it is, because once you've probably played one round of it, it'll be really obvious how it works. Yeah. Um, and then additionally... I um, at the end of the game, there's a, a bonus 10 victory points for whichever player has the most remaining power level left on the table. So whoever's cool. got the most remaining units, because you've basically won the War of Attrition. So in terms of Crusade play, as it were, or narrative play, that's your only way of scoring. It's all about yeah. you know, moving these objective markers around and controlling them. Uh, whereas, let's say for a match play scenario... You've then got the factor of things like engaging all fronts, Octarius data, blah, blah, blah. Oh. So you could have other things trying to do other stuff around the board as well. But at the same time, playing something like Stranglehold would be really interesting in this mission. Oh, yes, that would be uh, potentially tricky. But also potentially valuable. Well, I mean, yeah, if you control... Half the more than half of the objectives, then you're you're doing pretty well. Uh, if you've already kicked them, as it were. <laughs> yeah. It <is>. Cool. <laughs> uh, and then uh, there is a victor bonus in this for Crusade games, where in this case you would get to select two units to be marked for greatness instead of one. So there isn't like a persistent reward for match play missions. That's just stuck to your critical mission, you know, directive. But as with all Crusade missions, there is often a victory bonus up to part reward. So yeah, an interesting take on the tussling front lines sort of mission. Yeah. I could, I could see that being a lot of fun. Mm -hmm, I think it will be. Next up, we then have Gork's Bonds into <laughs> the Maelstrom. So this one is actually um, a battle that has been fought on a giant space hulk. And notably, nice. this is described as being a particularly colossal Space Hulk, even by Space Hulk standards. <laughs> the hulkiest Space Hulk. <laughs> um, In fact, if you were to describe the mass of this great Space Hulk, would it be critical? <laughs> <laughs> it probably would, yes. So then, to give you... Uh, the description for this mission. First up, we've got our deployment. So this one is a short table edges deployment. Okay. With a 24-inch no man's land. Again, so far, so standard. But actually, the attacker has a larger deployment zone because they deploy only six inches back from the center line. 
and the defender deploys 18 inches back from the center Ooh, line. Okay. So you've still got your 24-inch no man's land, but the defender's got a smaller sliver of deployment zone, and the attacker's oh, yeah. got almost half the table. Um, then, um, yeah, what they've they've got? So they've got a very tiny deployment zone. I mean, it, obviously, it's it's short table edge to short table edge. It's down the length of the table. I, I suppose but still probably only going to be like 12 inches in that configuration which is obviously mm. not a lot of the actual table yeah um, and then at the end of the determine attacker and defender step the defender sets up a total of four objective markers on the battlefield two of these cannot be set up in either player's deployment zone and must be set up more than six inches away from each other and nine inches from the battlefield edge so there's two objective markers in no man's land these are beta objective markers and then the other two are set up wholly within the defender's deployment zone um, and these are alpha objective markers so just a total of four two in no man's land two in the defender's zone so the attacker's got some work out for them right yes in addition each of these objective markers represent defensive systems um, on board the space hawk so these are actually going to be offensive systems attacking the attacker as they attempt to get close. So in the defender's command phase, the defender rolls 1d6 for each alpha or beta objective marker, adding 2 to the result if it's an alpha marker. On a 6+, the closest enemy unit, excluding characters, that is within 12 inches of the marker, suffers d3 multiple wounds. Cool. So the objective markers are going to be smiting the nearest units. Yep. Um, the uh, the no man's land are only doing it on a six plus, and the and the defenders' deployments are ones are doing it on a four plus. Fair enough. As weapon systems and such come alive to repel the attackers. However, the attackers' units uh, can perform the disabled defenses action. So one infantry unit from your army can perform this at the end of your movement phase. If it is in range of an alpha or beta objective marker that has not been disabled, uh, it cannot start this action while there are enemy units, except aircraft, within range of the same objective marker. The action is completed at the end of your turn. If it is completed, that objective marker is disabled, um, which means it can no longer use the defensive systems rule, so it will stop shooting you because you've turned it off or destroyed it. Okay. And that is also based on how the attacker scores some of their victory points for this mission. Yes. So this is one where the attacker and defender have two different or slightly different scoring methods. So uh, progressively for the defender, at the end of each of their command phases, they score five victory points for each of the following conditions. They control one or more markers. They control one or more alpha objective markers. They control one or more beta objective markers. So you can't just abandon your no man's land ones if you want to be scoring 15 points. Quite. And you can't just abandon your backfield if you want to charge forward. Equally true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remember, it's Orcs and Tyranids in this. Yeah, very true, actually. Um, and then destroy defences is the attacker's scoring system. So at the end of each of their command phases, they score five victory points for each of the following conditions. They control one or more objective markers. One or more beta objective markers have been disabled, and then one or more alpha objective markers have been disabled. 
Okay. So it's interesting how once you disable one, it's netting you five points every turn. You don't have to sort of keep hold of it or defend it anymore. There's no chance of it not yeah. scoring it. So long as you've knocked out one of the No Man's Land ones, five points a turn. If you knock out the Defender's Deployment Zone one, another five a turn. Cool. So it's it, it's an uphill struggle to complete it, but once you do, you're sort of banking points. Yeah. The opponent can literally do nothing about. Yeah, you can keep scoring them even if your entire army gets wiped off the table. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and that's it for determining your know, points. Again, if you're playing as match play, you do have your secondaries to account for that. But if you're playing mm -hmm. Crusade, you've got your agendas. Um, and then the victory bonus is that if... Uh, this is one of those ones where if you win the mission, you increase your requisition pool to five. Nice. So this is a high reward mission. Um, and if the attacker is the victor and... Uh, three or more objective markers were disabled their warlord is also marked with greatness cool and equally if the defender was the victor and fewer and one or fewer objective markers were disabled the defender's warlord is marked with greatness because they did such a good job <laughs> yeah so yeah that's an interesting little mission to say that you know the attacker is literally throwing themselves on the defensive guns of the defender nice. but the defender is having to try and keep the defensive weapon systems running in order to actually hold ground. That's uh, that's definitely one of those ones where you could quite easily do some special like modeling project for the objective markers and stuff like that. In fact, I think there are a few enthusiasts in our Facebook group who have very regularly made uh, turreted <laughs> defense emplacements yes. and so on. It, it's the kind of mission that would benefit from having specialist terrain and objective markers and stuff but it's the kind of specialist terrain and objective markers and stuff that uh, certain types of people will already have <laughs> yes. because it's fairly common kind of thing like oh it's on a spaceship I mean there's quite a lot of missions for that these days isn't there yeah there is to be honest there's more and more some of them are brilliant mm. I'd love to get a chance to play some then next up, we have our legendary mission based on Dakazot. This is the Collapse Zone. So Dakazot is basically your Tatooine world. It's your desert wasteland planet. And as such, there are a lot of speed freaks there. Nice. Racing around the wastes. And it's called the Collapse Zone because the Tyranids, their solution to fighting them has been to start burrowing beneath them and just start trying to collapse the surface where they're racing. Cool. So, as you can imagine, this is going to be a game where there's going to be some environmental damage as collapsing starts happening. So, again, pretty standard deployment. Long table edges, 20-inch no man's land, so 10 from the center. Okay. Um, no objective markers in this mission. So the actual way you score points is units from both sides are attempting to escape off their opponent's board edge in order to score victory points. So you are going to be trying to run past each other and stop the opponent from escaping in the process. Fair enough. Because they're attempting to escape the collapse. Because basically this section of the battlefield that they're on is just caving in and they need to get out of there because it is no longer feasible to survive in this area much longer. As such, unstable surroundings. Reinforcement units from your army 
cannot be set up within your opponent's deployment zone. Now, this is reinforcements, not strategic reserves. So I mm. assume this applies to anything, yes. including deep strikers and so on. Yes. And I suppose the main reason for this is so that you don't just have a unit deep strike next to the opponent's table edge and then escape. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have to land at least somewhere in no man's land and trudge through some opposition <laughs> before you can yeah. escape. Uh, speaking of which, you can escape the collapse, which is simple enough in that if a unit from a player's army is within one inch of their opponent's battlefield edge at the end of that player's moon phase, that unit can escape. Remove it from the battlefield, um, it cannot return to the battlefield, and is considered to have escaped. So it's not even a you have to hang around for a turn or at the start of the turn if you're within an inch, it's literally after you've moved. Yep. If you, if Just like an inch. Disembar uh, embarking into a vehicle or whatever. <laughs> disembarking from the board. Yes. <laughs> embarking <laughs> into your travel case. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um. So yeah, um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just read the victory points for this now because it's the same for both players. It's literally, at the end of each player's turn, uh, you score uh, for each of the following conditions to a maximum 15 points. Which is funny because it's, <laughs> it says to a maximum 15 points, which I think is just the standard text they put in here in this book, in all these mission examples yeah. because... Uh, oh no, no, there is actually a condition under here which could get 15, <laughs> but it's, right. it'd be slim. <laughs> So, you score one victory point for each unit that was at 50% or below 50% strength when it left the battlefield. Yep. You score two victory points for each unit, excluding Titanic units, that were not below half strength. So, that were 50% or higher. Right. And you score five victory points for each Titanic unit that escaped the battlefield this turn. Okay. So it is on a per unit basis. So, for example, if you had two relatively uninjured units leave, you would score four points. Yes. And I suppose if you had three Titanic units escape in one turn, that would be 15 points. Yes. So I, I guess so, if you somehow had three Titanic units and a unit that was below half strength of infantry, then you would only score 15 points. Yes. And that. The, you would be leaving the unit there to try and survive another turn to score yeah. you a point next turn. Uh, I mean, that's that sounds to me like it will be very low scoring. Yeah, I think this is one of those missions where actually your like your game score is probably going to be, like your primary is going to be somewhere between 10 and 20 points probably mm. at best. So this is probably a mission where actually the secondaries, if you play match play, are probably going to be quite significant for the outcome. More important, really. Hmm. Although, um, um, you wouldn't be able to pick any that involve objective markers. Very true, because there are none, so actually um, it would be dictating your decision quite a bit, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. However, the other special rule that's in effect and sort of the main gimmick of this particular mission is the triggered collapses. So, um, <laughs> there's an interestingly drawn set of uh, trigger points on the map so basically there are three trigger points on each of the table edges so and they're, they're meant to be denoted attack and defender but the, the point of it is basically it's set a and set b 
because you're always going to draw a line from one point of set A to one point of set B. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so... To explain it in detail, um, along the attacker's battlefield edge, there are three evenly spaced points labelled 1, 2, and 3. Okay. And then on one of the short table edges, there are three attacker trigger points numbered 4, 5, and 6. Right. The same is then true mirrored for the other two table sides for the defender. Okay. And when there's a collapse... You roll. You both roll a dice, and you draw a line between your two corresponding points. So the attacker might roll point one, and the defender might roll point four, and you would draw right. a straight okay. line yes. between those two points. So which that does mean there's a lot of. I, I, I'm done the maths off the top of my head, but what it's I don't know, twelve, twenty-four possible lines, something like that. There are many, many possibilities. Yeah, like diagonal lines, straight lines, blah, blah, blah lines. You could, you could have stuff that cuts from... The main thing is that you won't have stuff that cuts like one little corner to another because mm. of how the dots are set up. They're basically going to be cutting across some portion of the table yeah. 90% of the time. So... Yeah, so there's no real way of predicting it. So there's no real way of, like... Planning to evade Avoiding it. Yes. it. There's 36, yeah, yeah. by the way. Is that what it is? Out of the map, so yeah. got 36 possible lines of collapse. Yeah. At the start of each battle round, uh, the player who's taking the first turn rolls a d6 on a 5+, plus. there has been a collapse. So there's only a 1 in 3 chance of a collapse happening each turn anyway, but yep. when it does, both players roll a dice, consult the deployment map to work out which two points have been connected, you draw a straight line between those two points, and each unit that this line passes over suffers d3 mortal wounds. Yep. So there's going to be some indiscriminate, you know, lines of damage being drawn across the table, and they're probably going to hit several units each time when they do trigger. Quite possibly. So, yeah. So those are the collapses. So you're trying cool. to escape the board, avoiding the pitfalls, the literal pitfalls, <laughs> and um, also trying to battle your way through the opposing army, trying to do the same thing. And if you do win, then uh, each unit from the victor's army that escaped gains a bonus XP point, and hey. if it was above half strength, gains two XP points instead. Nice. I I would assume that in most situations you aren't going to get very many units off the board, because obviously you have to go through I, yeah. your opponent's army. I would assume this as well. I think I've played a few missions in the past that involve trying to escape off the table, and I think it's mostly one or two units. At best, usually one unit that's considered to be a fast thing, mm. and one that sort of like bludgeoned its way through the opponent <laughs> and is quite battered yeah. and beaten, but could have been like a slower infantry unit or something. I I would hazard a guess that that mission isn't going to be particularly good for match play. Mostly because the secondaries actually are going to yes. have a disproportionate amount of reward, and Ab the fact absolutely. that there's no objective markers to manipulate the secondaries with. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of secondaries you could pick. Um, the ones that involve killing things, for instance. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. So, yeah, perhaps that is going to be the weakest example of a match play uh, suitable mission, but still very fun for narrative, especially when, yeah. if the escaping is the only victory points you're scoring. Yes. However, then, on to mission four or five. This is on Ermuk, which is actually a space station. 
it's like sort of like a big um, orbital ship building um, orbital dock. Okay. Um, notably, all constructed by orcs. So of course, a, it is known as a giant scrap station. Uh, so this mission is capture the station. So deployment again, short table edges, a thirty-six inch no man's land this time. So eighteen inches back from the center line for both players. Oh, okay. So quite the gap. There are five objective markers. They're all twelve inches apart in a, you know, a plus sign sort of okay. formation. You know you. Uh, you vertically straight up cross. As it so were. three on the middle line, and then one closer to each deployment zone. Yes, because all five of these are in no man's land. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. There are then, in addition to this, impact zones A and B, which are a six-inch line in from the long table edges. Right. So if you're deploying on the short edges, but the long table edges, they're meant to represent the exterior walls of that section of the space station. So okay. the pair of you are, you know, you've come to blows in this part of the uh, the station, and those are the void walls, as it were. Fair. Uh, because they're going to be things crashing into those walls, <laughs> as for the Good. impact zone rules. So at the end of each battle round, the player who took the second turn randomly determines which of the impact zones will be affected by an impact. So, you know, you, you d6 it to determine if it's going to be zone A or B, and yep. then you roll um, a d6 on a, a d2 table to determine nice. if it was either void ammunition strike or if it was a void craft collision. So there will be an impact of some sort every round. You just have to randomly determine which one it's going to be, impact zone A or B, and which type it's going to be. If it is a void munition strike, each player rolls 1d6 for each unit from the army that is in the affected impact zone, or on the 6, they suffer d3 mortal wounds. Okay. They've been caught by blasts and explosions. Whereas on a 4 to 6, it's a void craft collision. Each player rolls 1d6 for each unit from the army that is within the affected impact zone. On a 6, until the end of the next battle round, each time a model in that unit makes an attack, subtract one from that attack's hit roll. Presumably because they've been shaken. Sure. The, or, a fin or fighting off whoever's arrived. Um, but then there is also a rule for uh, boarding pod arrival. Reinforcement units that are set up within impact zone are not eligible to declare a charge in the turn in which they are set up. Okay. I think the logic there is that if you've had a reinforcement arrive from the table edge, it's because they've arrived via boarding craft. Yeah, they've had so to last cut their way through the wall. Yeah, they're basically disembarking. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then, as for scoring, uh, at the end of each player's command phase, uh, they score five victory points each of the following conditions. Control one or more, control two or more, control more objectives than their opponent. Pretty standard. Yep. Stuff. Familiar with and that. Is, yep. And then there is a, an end of battle score as well for additional 20 victory points to um, the player with the... No, I'm just, just going to read it word for word. It'd be easiest to explain it. At the end of the battle, each player adds up the total power level of units from their army that are wholly within their opponent's deployment zone player with the highest total scores 20 victory points 
So there's a big victory point payout for having the most forces present in your opponent's deployment zone at the end of the game. Okay. Fair enough. So, yeah. So you've got points up for grabs for holding the center of the table with all these objective markers, but also for trying to hold your opponent's deployment zone. So if they've just rushed them, get points that way instead. So long as they're not just going to bypass you and end up in your deployment zone. Because if they outvalue you, you get nothing. Fair. And then victory bonuses for this are bonus XP for each unit that was in your opponent's deployment zone, and the victor also gains two requisition points. So again, a relatively high payout cool. mission. So, I mean, that sounds pretty cool. Um, my my immediate thought is that the impact zones might not have much of an effect because you'd just probably just not go in them. I did kind of think the same because the objective markers are in the middle, the deployment zones are on the other ends of the table. Yeah. It's almost a sort of like if you try their main impact, as it were, would be to try and funnel the battle into the middle of the table. Yeah. There doesn't seem much incentive for going into them other than just to spread out, I guess. Yeah, like I say, it probably is just trying to force engagement between the armies really more than anything. Yeah. I guess for in most games you'd, you'd avoid it unless you absolutely had to for whatever reason. Yeah. You might have a situation where you've got to go round units to in order to, if you're trying to get to the enemy's deployment zone, you might find that it's less defended going that way, I guess. Yeah, actually, because if you've got units on the objective markers that you're trying to skirt around, um, you might have to pass through the impact zones in order to make it yeah. to the opponent's deployment zone. Right. And then finally for our legendary missions, we have the battle itself on Octaria, Break Their Back. And this mm -hmm. is basically, um, it's kind of like, not character duels as such, but characters are important to victory and the aim is to basically be killing the opponent's characters. Nice. Whilst keeping yours alive. So, um, sort of standard arrowhead long table edge deployment. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah, so it's like the tip of your arrow deployment is about six inches further forwards than the um, back edges of your front line. Yeah. There's a 20 inch no man's land from tip to tip of those deployment zones. Okay. And there are four objective markers. Once again, 12 inches apart, directly along the center line between the two deployment zones. Okay. So like the first mission, but only four objective markers this time. Yeah. But in addition to objective markers, there is also another sort of resource game in effect for this mission called Leadership Points. At the start of each player's first command phase, uh, players must allocate a total of 30 leadership points as evenly as possible between the character units from their army that are on the battlefield. Okay. So you can manipulate this slightly by having some that are off the battlefield, which does include in transports in this case because they actually have to be ones that are on the battlefield to be allocated leadership points. Yeah. If a unit that has any leadership points allocated to it leaves the battlefield for 
any reason, with the exception of embarking on a transport, <laughs> that unit's leadership points are immediately lost. Because you need to be seen on the battlefield leading your forces. Okay. Set so, an example. Obviously, so the uh, the primary reason you'd leave the battlefield is being dead. <laughs> yes, typically. like uh, You're not going to be doing things like the jumping or Veil of Darknessing or Wings of yeah. Firing in this instance because that would actually cause you to lose your leadership points. But the primary reason would be because you get killed. Yeah, That's the reason you would mostly lose your leadership points. And to that end, the other half of this is to set an example rule, which is each time an enemy character unit with any leadership points allocated to them is destroyed by an attack made by a character unit from your army. And that's just an attack. It doesn't have to be melee, so it could be involved shooting them. Yep. Allocate a number of additional leadership points to your character equal to the number of leadership points the enemy character unit had allocated to them. Okay. So you steal that. You steal their points and add it to your yeah. total. So, the two main ways of manipulating it here is that killing and removing the opposing characters causes their army's leadership total to drop. And if you kill them with a character of your own, then you also get to increase your total at the same time. Nice. To which end, the victory points for this mission, at the end of each player's turn, they score points for each of the conditions to a maximum of 15. Five victory points if any enemy units that had leadership points allocated to them have been destroyed. So, killing characters for the turn will net you five points. Okay. They score five victory points if the total number of leadership points allocated to enemy units is 20 or less and score 5 victory points if the total number of leadership points allocated to enemy units is 9 or less so as you're dwindling their leadership points you're gaining more victory points yeah 5 for killing something that had leadership points 5 if you've reduced them to 20 or less 5 if you've reduced them to 9 or less okay and then finally, we also have lead by example, because you'll notice that so far the objective markers haven't come into play. No, they have not. At the end of each player's command phase, the player whose turn it is scores 10 victory points if a unit from their army that has any leadership points is within range of an objective marker. Cool. So the only things capable... Of of holding objective markers in this game for the primary anyway are characters and ones who have leadership points to potentially be losing or giving up if they get killed while attempting to hold those objectives now obviously if you play match play you just do what your secondary is coming into play in terms yep. of use of these objective markers but the main thing is about assassinating enemy characters without losing your own yes and having yours standing in the middle if possible and potentially harvesting points from the opposing characters by landing the killing blows themselves yeah that's uh, in theory it's very interesting yeah, for match play um because is, obviously in match play you're limited to 50 total for the primary uh so you could conceivably get all of that in uh the um 
end of command phase standing on the on the objective well almost all of it obviously you wouldn't be able to do it in the first turn yeah but obviously um, you could do it in uh, a couple of others so yeah like between having your leaders holding objectives and between um wrecking opponents characters yeah is going to be the main way to gain your primary points and if you're playing crusade obviously it's that's the whole win condition I could certainly imagine a situation when one side aims to score most of their points by standing in the middle and the other side aims to score most of their points by just killing the characters. Whether or not you have enough bodyguards to last the day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like those are the five legendary missions that are in this book. And I do think to say that they've been designed to be matched play, narrative play hybrids... I think they are an mm. interesting new concept. Yeah. Like I say, we've identified that maybe one of them is perhaps a little bit of a dud when you consider the influence of the secondaries. Yeah. And a another one has perhaps a less noticeable battlefield influence, i.e. the impact zones. But... As a whole, I certainly think the first mission and the last mission in particular would present two really interesting missions played as either Crusade or Match Play ones. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I, uh, I th it's it's interesting just the the concept of them. I mean, their narrative Crusade type missions, you know, at heart, I guess. Um, yeah. But there's no reason. There's never been any reason why you can't play any of the Crusade missions as match play if you wanted to, uh, like because they all have a a similar kind of scoring mechanism. Yeah, they have some sort of primary objective, and that's it. And if you want to yeah. play them as matched, you can take your secondaries as well. Yeah, there's, there's no reason why you can't do that. So, in that regard, this is nothing new. But it's new that they specifically said you can do this. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly for people at a game club who are used to every three weeks playing something that is a standard match play mission, and then every fourth week you play something that's just a little bit out there, something a little bit different from one of these. Yeah. And then go back to three more weeks of your standard match play stuff, and then have another interesting legendary mission. I think it would be a good almost a good gateway campaign for people who typically play <laughs> match play to sort of experience a little bit of what some of the more obscure narrative play stuff can be like. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, think, I think it's just funny that, hey, look, Game Social have released some new match play missions. Yeah. <laughs> just not in a GT pack. <laughs> no. But they're there. Yeah. Right then. So, speaking of other things that they have released for match play, <laughs> I think we'll move on now to the Army of Renown in this book. Okay. So, uh, the Speed Freak Speed Mob is certainly an interesting option now for Orc players. So, we'll be back with that in just a second, guys. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group? at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on 
and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back, guys. So this is going to be a look at the latest army of Renown um, in this campaign supplement. So the last one we did was actually the Disciples of Velikor. Um We ended up skipping over the um, Death Watch kill team specialisms last time because it was basically Death Watch doing Death Watch things. <laughs> Fair. A bit, a bit like with the uh, Skitari Vanguard, um, but. Unlike the Disciples of uh, the Bellicor, which were very interesting and uh, definitely put a different spin on how to play those factions, the Speed Freak Speed Mob does the same thing for Orcs. So we wanted to highlight it and break it down because it is a very interesting way of playing Orc armies and certainly a very narrative one because it is the Speed War at its very essence. So it's essentially that. It's... Um, it's bikes, buggies, and vehicles. Yep. More or less anything with wheels or tracks on it, as opposed to legs. Or it's wings. Good. No, yeah, all wings. Wing, wings are also in there. <laughs> so um, the speed mob itself, uh, it comes with just a sort of very simple list of restrictions. Unlike Bellacor, who had a big long list of friends he would not play with. <laughs> Um, the restrictions for a Speed Freak Speed Mob is simply that your army can only include Speed Freak, Wagon, and Aircraft units. So, specifically, that is all varieties of the buggies, including yep. um, the only legible HQ option for you then, in that case, is the Death Kill War Trike. Ah, the... Uh, um, the uh, there is uh, the Speed Boss on bike from Forge World, isn't yes. there, as well? Yes, yes. Uh, I suppose he's also another legible option. He, he is yeah, a Speed Freak, I'm pretty sure. So it's either the boss on bike from Forge World or the Death Killer War Trike. They're going to be your HQ options, that's it. But otherwise you get all the other buggies as your fast attack choices, even if it is just one type of buggy per yep. <laughs> unit, as it were. Um, it means you also get uh, war bikers and death copters, yep. because they're also speed freaks. Um, and in the case of Aircraft, you obviously get all of the orc aircraft to play with, and wagons is the free sort of arch types of battle wagon, so mm -hmm. standard battle wagon, gun wagon, and bone breaker. I suspect there's a couple of Forge World things that are wagons as well. Possibly, yeah, I imagine. Um, so yeah, there's probably a few things to plumb in those options as well, but I find it funny that you can specifically take wagons, which are primarily transport vehicles, yes, despite the but fact you no one to go in, them. in this <laughs> Yeah, nothing in his army that could possibly embark in them. That's very silly. I mean, I get it in the case of things like, you know, the Bone Breaker specifically is because that thing can, you know, it can rock up and just run people over with its yeah. roller and all sorts. Like, it, it itself can basically behave like an abstract sort of Dreadnought-esque style vehicle. Um, I mean, I myself would potentially run up with gun wagons um, yeah. bringing sort of like some heavier artillery in vehicle form to a speed war. But um, yeah, it's just funny that they'll be rolling around with transport capacity they can't make use of. Yeah. But hey-ho, it's not the 
at the end of the world. That's not the reason why you'd be bringing them, I suppose, in this army. But the upshots for doing so, for sort of limiting yourself to everything on wheels and tracks, is that um, all the units from your army gain the speed mob keyword, which basically just means they're part of this army of renown and are eligible for its warlord traits, strategy, and custom jobs. Yep. Uh, all your speed freak units um, gain the adrenaline junkies ability, so specifically um, the buggies, the bikes, and the death copters, not the wagons and aircraft. Yeah. Um, which uh, adrenaline junkies uh, gives these units a six up in one, which any in any turn in which they advance, this is increased to a five up save until. Um, your next movement phase. Uh, each time the unit advances in your movement phase, it, it counts as making a normal move until the end of your next shooting phase. So basically, unless you want to charge, you've got no incentive not to advance every turn. Nah. You just are going to be careening around, advancing, gaining your um, enhanced inborn and shooting completely normally as if you hadn't advanced. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I suppose on rare occasion, um, you wouldn't be able to complete an action if you were advancing, but I think True. most things you'd be capable of doing would be um, cunning stunts anyway for <laughs> yeah. your uh, speed freaks agenda, and that would be about it anyway, but who knows. Um, any any turn in which you basically charge or perform a rock intervention, you get to increase your attacks by one, which I do think is interesting on things like the buggies. I mean, obviously it's intended mostly for like, the war bikers and the death copters. That is, it, that's nasty on death copters. Yeah, with the uh, blades that get extra yeah. attacks. Uh, but I think it's particularly nasty on things like the Megatrack Scrapjet, which has a pretty nasty melee weapon for the nose drill. When yes. you're restricted to an army that only contains vehicles, mm. being able to squeeze out extra attacks is going to be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, uh, and then, additionally... The actual adrenaline junkie units, so the bikes, the buggies, and the death copters, they never gain a clan trait. So mm -hmm. you don't get your death skull rerolls, you don't get your um, extra range on your bad moon weapons, blah, blah 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 blah. But they don't stop the other things in your detachment from keeping their traits, so specifically the aircraft and wagons. Yeah. They're not gaining this here. Innate in bun, and they're not gaining the ability to advance and shoot normally. But instead, they'll keep whatever clan traits they have. So you still have a clan as a speed mob. Yeah. And it also obviously is still relevant for things like stratagems and relics. So, you know, if you are playing as an Evil Sons speed mob, your Evil Sons Death Killer War Trike could still take Evil Sons relics. And could still make use of the Evil Sun stratagem and so on. Yeah. Even if he himself is not benefiting from the clan culture of being an Evil Sun. Yeah. Because he's benefiting from being an adrenaline junkie instead. Yeah. You lose the culture, but you keep the keyword. Yes. Which I know <laughs> is a particular thing of interest to freebooter players. Oh, yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because. Obviously, your adrenaline junkie freebooters, they do themselves will not gain plus one to hit if a freebooter unit kills something, because that is the clan culture. Yes. However, 
they are still a freebooter unit. Because yes. they have the freebooter keyword. So if they kill something, they do turn on the plus one for the wagons and aircrafts that are freebooters. Yes. So That would be really good if you had, say, more than two aircraft for some reason. <laughs> but those aircraft are probably was bombs hitting on freeze in that instance. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like it, I know that obviously that's something doing the rounds at the moment potentially is a, the latest iteration of the meta uh, speed wire, as it were. Freebooters are not dead by any means. Yeah, no. But but it's interesting just to remember that if you are running this, your your adrenaline junkies are still members of their clan, so they still have relic stratagems, yeah. blah blah blah. They just don't specifically gain the advantage or whatever. Because they're too busy being absolute speed freaks. Speaking of uh, relics, stratagems, blah blah blah. There are some unique ones in here. What's interesting from them? So, there is one warlord trait, uh, which is the Speed King warlord trait, and this is basically turns them into a uh, Primarch Lieutenant. Okay. <laughs> so, any friendly speed freak units, excluding characters within six inches of this warlord, get to reroll ones to wound. Nice. Which is nice for orcs because we don't typically get reroll auras. No. So, having reroll ones aura on probably a death killer war trike um, is nice because. Um, so, again, this is. He affects friendly speed freak units, so he's not going to be buffing the aircraft or the wagons, but he is going to be buffing the bikes and the copters and blah, blah, yeah. Um, what is interesting is the fact that um, there's actually two unique custom jobs available in here, which isn't something nice to see, because there aren't hmm. actually any unique relics. Instead, we've got custom jobs being offered. So, the two new um, custom jobs are drag chains, which is basically... Um, when this speed mob vehicle is selected to fall back, um, you basically do mortal wounds. It's kind of like ramming speed, but in reverse. Nice. So when you fall back from an enemy unit, on a d6 roll of 2 to 5, they suffer d3 mortal wounds, and on a 6, they just suffer a flat 3 mortal wounds. Oof. Nice. So if you, if you put that on something like the custom booster blaster that has the spiked ram, you could just be like, I'm going to yeah. charge you, 2 plus mortal wounds. I'm going to fall back from combat, 2 plus mortal wounds. Nice. I'm going to use the ramming speed stratagem for 2 plus, mortal, two plus D6 mortal wounds and just literally roadkill people. Nice. I mean, in, in the case of a speed mob where you might have multiple detachments, which the first outrider of which you take um, gains the command benefit to basically be free. That's cool. Like uh, like the battalions have, so you can have a core because uh, you're gonna have to be outrider for this because you've got no yeah. choices. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big problem. And a lot of fast choices. Yeah, um, but if you've got multiple detachments and you've got multiple death killer war tracks leading each of them, um, I could see making a big boss who has the road killer warlord trait and then the drag chains as a custom job. Yeah. So you've actually got a death killer who's uh, doing mortal wounds on impact and fall back. Nice. Uh, the other extra special one is the raised suspension, so speed mob vehicle only. Uh, while this model is within engagement range of any enemy models, it is still able to make ranged attacks against enemy units that are not within engagement range of it. <laughs> 
so you can just continue to fire out of combat as if you were like a Titanic vehicle. So that's a, a custom job to boying up the vehicle and shoot over the top of the heads of whoever you're fighting. Yeah, it's got raised suspension. So I like the idea that there's um, a shock jump dragster out there somewhere that could potentially have raised suspension completely countering the point of being a dragster. Yes. <laughs> hmm. to, to the point where it's taller than a primary space marine. Nice. I just got images of like a monster truck, but we rather than like your um, rocket truck style top, it's just this like F1 car. <laughs> style vehicles on top of the <laughs> nice um, and then finally we have a bunch of stratagems and I am actually going to run through all of them because they're really interesting and they've got this um, theme to them where they sort of have a, a primary effect for all vehicles and then like a bonus effect if it's a particular one of the buggies okay so first up we've got Blitzer Daka for 1 CP, use it in your shooting phase when a speed mob unit from your army is selected to shoot. Until the end of your turn, each time a model in that unit makes a ranged attack that targets an enemy unit within 12 inches, re-roll a hit roll of 1. Okay. Um, which, this can be for a speed mob unit, so this is anything from the formation, so this could be your cool. wagons. This could be your aircraft. So if you're in 12, re-roll once to hit, 1 CP. Or it could be a speed freak unit that's next to the war boss but with the warlord traits who re-rolling ones to hit and wound. Exactly. So actually you've got some relatively accurate shooting here. But Your old captain-lieutenant second... combo. <laughs> well, the Death Killer Wartrek does have two riders on it. Yeah. <laughs> if, he, if he isn't the boss's lieutenant, I don't know who else qualifies. <laughs> Uh, but the second part of this stratagem is that if the speed mob unit was a custom booster blaster, you get to reroll hit and wound. You get to reroll a hit roll of ones and twos instead. Now, interestingly, in the case of the booster blaster, it mostly has flamer weapons, which means that this is primarily affecting its rivet cannon and yeah. amusingly the grot blaster. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But the rivet cannon is basically a souped-up auto cannon, so giving it re-roll ones and twos to hit, yeah, is uh, pretty tasty. Mm -hmm. And this is a speed mobby unit, so this isn't tied to like a single yeah. vehicle instance. If you've got your full unit of three custom booster blasters for one CP, all three rivet cannons get to re-roll ones and twos to hit. Nice. I mean, I like the idea of having um, boom Dacker snaz wagons, all three of them, uh, rocking out your. For 42 mech special shots that would get to re-roll ones to hit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be another fun one to do with. Then, for 2CP, we've got Charge! That's all it's called. That's just the name of the stratagem. Is there an exclamation mark at the end of that? Uh, there is. Uh, do you want to take cool. a guess as to how many letter A's there are in it? Uh, three. There are in fact five. <laughs> nice. It's a very long distance charge. Okay. Um, so use this charge in your charge phase when a war biker's unit from your army makes a charge move. Until the end of the turn, add one to strength characteristics of models in that unit. And 
Each time it makes an attack with a melee weapon, improve its armor penetration characteristic by one. So considering that these are already orcs armed with choppers in combat. Yeah. And because they're in this mob, they get plus one attack when they charge. Nice. For two CP, your biker unit gets to put out um, an extra attack, extra strength. And so what's that going to be? Is that a four attacks at strength five, AP minus two per bike, I think, if my maps right. Something two like base that. Chop- yeah, two base attacks, chopper, and the, um, the plus one for charging. <laughs> now, so I mean, that just makes war bikers really good hitting. Which, by the way, did I mention? Uh, correct me if I mentioned it earlier or not, but one of the important points about this whole mob was the fact that your war biker units gained obsec. Uh, you didn't mention that earlier, but that's pretty useful. Yes, it is. I can't believe I forgot about that piece. So, yeah, yeah. So, again, in theme with making this a viable army in itself, you have obsec units by using this formation, so your war bikers are obsec. Not your speed freaks, your death copters don't get it, it's specifically war bikers. Fair. But it does mean you've got your troop equivalent that yeah. can roam in and be obsec and charge in with a lot of high strength, high AP attacks, apparently. Yeah. And bullets, don't forget bullets, because obviously if you are, uh, by virtue of your HQ choices, you will always be running as a speed war, which means that you will be getting extra AP and shots Oof. on those Daco guns as well when it comes to shooting. Yep. So it, it's funny how the, the buggies seem like the obvious star of the show, but actually the war bikers themselves have a lot going for them in this formation. War bikers are, are no joke. They are no joke. Especially when you get to our next stratagem, just in case charging with them wasn't already enough. This is called Crashing Through for 1 CP. This is basically unit-wide ramming speed is the easy way of surmising it. Okay. So, use this stratagem in your charge phase when Speed Freak's unit finishes a charge move. If that unit has the spiked ram ability, so specifically the Scrapjet and the Booster Blaster, the ones who innately have the ability yes. to deal impact hits on charge. Um... It cannot use the spiked ram ability this turn because it's going to do this different thing instead, which we'll get to in a little bit. So you you don't do the standard ramming, you do this fancy ramming instead for those units. Otherwise, select one enemy unit that is in one inch of the speed freak unit that has just finished its charge move, and roll 1d6 for each model in the speed freak unit up to a maximum of 66. So... It's either going to be, you know, one to three if it's a unit of buggies, or it's going to be six if it's a unit of um, bikes or deathcopters, potentially. If the Speed Freak unit has the biker keyword for each dice roll of a four plus, the enemy unit suffers one mortal wound. If the Speed Freak unit has the vehicle keyword, but was not one of the ones of spiked ram, for each dice result of a four plus, the enemy unit suffers D3 mortal wounds. But if it was a Scrapjet or Booster Blaster unit, so the ones with the innate ramming ability, for each dice result of a 2 to 5, the enemy units of a D3 mortal wounds, and feature all of a 6, this of a 2d3 mortal wounds. Ooh. Now that is a natural improvement because the innate ramming ability for those units is only on a 4 plus it triggers. So even if you yeah. did the D3 anyway, it's a 2 plus trigger for doing the D3. Okay. And it's 1 CP regardless of whatever combination of unit is that's using that. So 
you're either rolling between one to three dice for a unit of buggies or six for the bikes and outputting a variable amount of mortal wounds based on which unit it is. Yeah. But <laughs> you could, in theory, have this on... I mean, it would only be um, a single vehicle model unit, but you could do this for one CP on that... Um, Death killer boss we were talking about with the drag chase <laughs> and the road yes. killer mortal trait. So you could literally be like, I've charged, I hit you for road killer mortal wounds, I use CP, I crash through you for mortal wounds, I'm gonna fall back from combat in my next turn and do mortal wounds. I don't even need to fight you at this point, I'm just running you over. <laughs> so I go yeah. backwards and forwards. Oof. Then, speaking of falling back, we have another stratagem called More Gits Over Here. <laughs> One CP. Use this stratagem in your movement phase. Select a speed mob unit from your army when it falls back. Uh, that unit is eligible to shoot this turn even if it fell back. So, for one CP, any speed mob unit, and this includes things like the wagons again, one CP, the ability to fall back and shoot in this army. That's tasty. It is. But in addition, if the <laughs> unit that did fall back was a Boomdacus Nazwagon unit... Uh, Until the end of the turn, each time a model in that unit makes a ranged attack, an unmodified hit roll of a 6 scores one additional hit. Cool. And these are the buggies that particularly pump out a million DACA bullets. So, I mean, it sounds to me like you want your your um, your chains upgrade on one of them. Well, that's debatable, because obviously the chain upgrade has been a custom job, can only be on a unit of one. Whereas yeah. this would be good to have on a unit of three for one CP, fall back and shoot, reroll. I suppose so. Having exploding sixes. I mean, in either case, it's not bad. It's only one CP. But it's got multiple uses. And I think for things like falling back with your Death Killer War Trike, you'd be able to melt a flame something. Or yep. your custom booster blasters, a unit of three of them that back off, move over to something else, and then open up with all the flamers in the world. Uh, so, was it uh, vehicles or units? Speed mob unit. So, so you could do it with, with war bikes, for instance. You could do it with war bikes. Which would be quite nasty. Fall back and shoot. Mm -hmm. Then we've got um, a 2CP strat called Attack Auto de Sun, which is basically um, re-deep strike for death copters. Nice. Uh, it's a particularly good one because there's no condition on being removed from the battlefield. So uh, use it at the end of your turn, select a death cop to unit, remove it from the battlefield in the reinforcement step of your next movement phase, set them back up anywhere over nine inches away from any models. Yeah. Um, cool. But it means that you can pull them out of combat. And That's fun. There's no, there's no condition on them leaving the battlefield, just end of your turn. Cool. Which is fun because it means they get to do some redeploy. And then finally, 1CP, lots of squigs. Use this stratagem in your shooting phase. Select one rocket truck squig buggy unit from your army. Add one to the number of squig mines that unit has remaining. <laughs> so, i.e., you get another bomb squig, basically. Nice. Um, and that's everything for the speed mob. It's literally uh, a bunch of cool rules for being adrenaline junkies couple of new custom jobs and a bunch of really interesting new stratagems that basically open up a whole slew of tactical options particularly yeah. when they involve running people over or 
backing up in order to shoot them slash run them over again. Uh, so are you thinking of giving them a go sometime? Um, I do actually, this is one of the armies of renown where I actually do own units enough to be able to field um, a yes. force for this. In my case, I think it would actually be, I would have no variation in it, I would have 1500 points of a list, which is literally the units I own that qualify for it. Yeah. Um, but it would be fun and I think I'd probably give it a go just to see how it played. Um, it's funny how... I think this is a really good example of an army of renown in that all the benefits you gain undeniably make the units involved and the strategies you can use better, more flexible and more impactful. But realistically the ways that you're gaining strengths are only to compensate for the things you're giving up by taking this like formation in the first place. Obsec yeah. warbikers are great, but that's because you've got no obsec troops. Yeah. The ability to fall back and shoot with buggies um, is great, but that's because you don't have the other options of all the other shooter units you could have had in the rest of your rock army. You've not got any support for these units, so they need to be able to act more independently. Yeah, uh, I'm a little surprised it doesn't let you take big mechs as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's a shame that it doesn't allow you to take fortifications purely for taking the mech workshop. Ha, <laughs> yeah. Like, I get, obviously, it's not meant to necessarily be the base of operations for the speed mob. They're probably meant to be out and about before returning to the mech, but it would have been interesting to see a mech option of some sort. I mean, funnily enough, in the latest Flashpoint, um series in White Dwarf, there is actually a data sheet for a um, HQ Deathcopter character. Cool. He is like, you know, a, a unique character in the way of like the Tome Keepers characters were unique characters. You know, stuff like that. The, these unique ones for White Dwarf, but it is another option that's there. Um, I think he's... I don't think, I can't remember if he has the mech keyword or not, but he's got some unique like bombing abilities and stuff. Interesting. Um, be fancy using him because he would be eligible for this. I believe he's an evil son, so you would have to be playing an evil son mob to take him. But it's cool. I think it's interesting, and it's one that I want to give a whirl. And stuff like this is what I feel plays into gimmick armies. The games workshop know people love. They yeah. know people love speed freak armies, and this isn't just a well. If you want to play speed freaks take all the buggies and bikes and just deal with it you know that's what you want to play this is a you can take all the bikes and buggies and actually have a good army that yeah. can play in every mostly every phase of the game actually engage with the objectives and basically be involved without just having to be handicapped by the virtue of the gimmick it's trying to be yeah yeah you are rewarded for doing the gimmick i genuinely think this is one of the best examples of what an army of renown can be. Now, obviously, there is some element at the moment right now of speed freaks being you know, the boogeyman list of orcs in competitive scenes. And this isn't... I don't think this has been presented as either a way of making the freebooters even better or a way of toning down the speed freaks. I genuinely think it's a... <laughs> it's a change of fast pace. Yeah. I mean, I think... Uh, those kind of competitive lists aren't just speed freaks. Uh, 
they, they usually have stuff like commandos and uh, a beast boss on the the um, squigasaur and stuff like that. Squigasaur and such, yeah. So I don't think this is going to be something that's going to get a bad rep in the way that, like, say, the Skitari Vandat Guard did for a while. Yeah. I think but all of the uh, armies of renown have certainly, uh, yeah. even if they look strong on paper, sort of as initially presented, I don't think any of them have suddenly become this crazy overpowered force that's ruining the game. No, I completely agree. I don't think any of them have done that. I think one of them has perhaps fallen a little flat on what he was trying to achieve and has basically moved into obscurity already. Can you tell me which one that was? Uh, whichever one I can't think of off the top of my head, presumably. The um, Mechanicus Defense Cohort. Right. See, Maybe I like that all one. Not Skatari stuff. Yes, uh, for me, that's that's the more interesting part of Admech. Yeah, and I'm sure that's absolutely the case. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I know that in you know the last six months, I have heard you know talk at some points about the Terminus Est Assault Force, the Vanguard, uh, the uh, Skatari Vanguard, the even recently the Death Watch um, one. I've heard mentioned, you know, discussed occasionally. Um, speed. This new speed mode definitely has already been talked about. Not necessarily, like you say, in game-breaking competitive circles as such, but I hear talk about it. But I don't think I've mm -hmm. ever heard anyone really talk about wanting to try playing with the defense cohort. What about the uh, the the free blade uh, banner? Ah, actually, yeah, you're right. I didn't even I forgot about that one existed. So actually, that's probably uh... a better example because. But I think that one is probably more virtue of the fact that, I mean. Did you ever know anyone who owned a collection of multiple free blades? Not really. Um, no, I think most people typically have a household and maybe a free blade hanging around. Yeah, but it but, would be a cool project. It would. It would be a cool project. And it would certainly but work speaking... for anyone who has an, a knight's army that they bought off eBay. <laughs> yeah, it would. This is my eBay army of renown. <laughs> I've yet to repaint it all, so it's a bunch of free blades for now, honest. Yep, perfect. Well, um, speaking of interesting and exciting projects, let's move on now to review our Crusade rules from this book, because Rogue Traders, they have some sneaky projects on the go, and they're always looking to strike a deal. So let's... Uh, Move over to that now and we'll uh, see what we find. You gets listen up now and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you gets supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of yous without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides, tell the paint boy over at Narrative Wah Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Right, get out of here. Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com. 
to discuss any potential hobby projects, and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. Right, you gits. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the pingboy. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tooth sent you. You might get some extra special. And we're back, guys, for the last part of our coverage for Warzone Octarius Critical Mass. And this is actually the Crusade rules. So typically, this is something which is a bit more of an expanded section in these books where it's tying in some crusade mechanics or agendas and requisitions and unit upgrades to sort of match the campaign system. But funnily enough, in this case, there isn't really much of that. There's honestly some crusade relics. That's it. Okay. So if, you know, you've got characters that have ranked up and been playing in this campaign, they gain themselves a shiny new campaign badge. They get the Octaria system campaign badge, which makes them eligible for taking essentially one crusade like because they're all faction locked so whatever right. army you're doing you would have an option which is funny because even though they're never mentioned in here there is a crusade relic for tau empire battle suits a necron huh. model an aldari model okay <laughs> like there's a there's a couple of interesting things um and give me some examples a... then well so, for example, the uh, the multi-target uh, multi tracking node for a Tau Empire battle suit is that each time the bearer makes a ranged attack that targets an enemy unit with a starting strength of 11 or more models, you can re-roll the attack's wound roll. Okay. There you go. I have a Crusade Relic. I'm a little better at doing a thing. Makes me slightly more killy. Cool. Fair. Um... The Mask of Mori Heg, Aldari model only. Each time the bearer would lose a wound on a d6 uh, of a 5+, plus, the wound is not lost. And each time an out-of-action test is failed for the bearer, you can re-roll that test. Nice. Which is interesting, because you get to re-roll it out of action, but, you know. Yeah. I have a Crusade Relic. Makes gives me feel that pain. Cool. E even <laughs> even the Overfiend's second best basher. <laughs> okay. Right? The, the, the description on this being that the Overfiend is a ferocious and adaptive fighter. When High Fleet Leviathan arrived in the Octari sector, he soon discovered that the enormous iron club he favoured was not as effective at uh, staving in the reinforced chitinous skulls of the biggest tyrannid beasts as he would have hoped. When he discarded it, his boys ensured that it was still put to good use. So this is literally the boss's old weapon, because it wasn't good enough. Nice. And all it is, is it's a melee weapon... Plus three strength, AP minus three, damage three. It replaces a chopper type weapon. I mean, that's know, not bad. Chopper, blah, blah. It's not bad. It hits hard, but that's all it is. You know what I mean? It's literally, yeah. like no special rules yeah. or anything fancy. It's just it's a big bashy chopper. Oh, oh. Technically, it doesn't even have the chopper rule. <laughs> Tony, Tony, chitinous. Kai, oh, sorry, chitinous skulls. <laughs> As so, a yeah, tyrannid player. <laughs> I have to know how to pronounce chitin. Fair enough. Um, I will not be chited into making that mistake again. Uh... <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, like some fancy relics. Like one of them is a, a tyrannid skull, which um, 
subtracts one from attacker's attack rolls that target you, and if the enemy unit that was attacking you was in fact a tyrannid creature, um, they're a minus one to wound you as well. <laughs> Ow. Poor tyrannid. Because the skull, yeah, because the skull that you've got is um, like of a synapse creature, so it, it still retains some of the synapse connectivity and like disrupts the tyrannids. Cool. Okay, so first of all, who's that for? Is it Death Watch? Uh, that is Defender Alliance only. All right, so Imperial. No, uh, well, Defenders. Techni orcs. Te technically Orcs. Yeah. Yes. Or anyone else? Okay. Yeah, or cool. Or anyone else who um, was part of the Defenders Alliance for your campaign? Okay. Okay. Hold on. So it's Orcs. So our our hypothetical it's from uh, Age of Sigma. <laughs> Our, our hypothetical weird boy who collected the scorched git bones and the bones from the one of the uh, flashpoints. There were like two bone relics you yeah. could pick up, are, are so we can also pick up a tyrannid skull. Yes, we we will create our ultimate weird boy, Mister. It's magical it's bones. another magical bone relic. <laughs> yeah, I think that now, I think that now makes four that he could acquire. Amazing. <laughs> Or five even, I think, because there's one in the codex, two in the flashpoints, and this one's four. I think, yeah, like, see, I think it's yeah. four magical bones you can get now. Perfect. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the, in terms of the campaign, that's the extent of the crusade rules in here. There is a couple of relics, one or two available to you based on your alliance and faction. Cool. Cool. Fair enough. Where it gets interesting is the actual crusade rules in here for... Um, Astra, Cartographica, and Orcs. So yes. first up, we've got the Rogue Traders. Now, mm -hmm. they themselves basically run a mini-resource game, as as is the want of most Crusade forces. Um, and in their case, if you've got a Rogue Trader as part of your order of battle, so typically that will be one Rogue Trader of your choice, uh, of the sort of three archetypes that exist, plus a squad of the Spacefaring guardsmen, basically. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got them as part of your army for a game, you can pick one of two agendas uh, for them. The first of which is your typical denote a special objective. That one is extra special to you, and if you do an action on it, you gain some XP based on how many times you did the action. Okay, yep. Cool. There are many variations of that. Yep. Where it gets interesting is the second option, which is the aggressive negotiation. <laughs> but this is where the rogue traders are basically looking for acquiring all the strange and exotic Xeno and Archaeotech stuff that they tend to do. Yep. And so I, I think you might like to include one of these in your Mechanicum um, Crusade Force, because do you like eccentric alien te uh, technologies and trinkets? Do I? <laughs> then you need a rogue trader. <laughs> Because you could start taking the aggressive negotiation agenda. Keep a valuables tally for each Astrocartographica unit from your army. Each time one of these units from your army destroys an enemy unit that is within six inches and has any relics or crusade relics, <laughs> add one to this unit's valuables tally. Yoink. Now... Like I say, we didn't go into great detail, but the individual rogue traders themselves do have various ways of outputting some high damage attacks and mortal wounds and blah 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 yeah. blah, blah things. That the rogue trader is capable of, you know, putting down an enemy character given the right circumstances. They're not exactly yeah. a pushover, so they can do some stuff. 
Each unit gains two experience points for each mark on your valuables tally. If the total of all valuables tallies in your army is four or more, you can make use of the Master of Negotiation requisition for zero requisition points after the battle, as if you had spent one requisition point on it. Okay. So if you if you manage to get um, two enemy characters with relics of any description, army of crusade uh, variants, then you get to do this requisition for free. Now, okay. as the uh, uh, rogue traders, there are two requisitions that you could use. The first of which is this Master of Negotiations. So you can either use this for one slash two requisition points or for zero if you've got four uh, valuables points from right. your agenda. Purchase this requisition at any time. Generate one Archaeotech Curiosity. Ooh. So, Dan, do you like tables of obscure abilities and special rules that are combined together to make a unique artifact of craziness? Do I? <laughs> then you need a Rogue Trader. <laughs> yes. So, basically, when you generate an Archaeotech Curiosity and then you give it to the Rogue Trader unit... Um, there's four D6 tables here. Okay. And if you've spent one requisition point, or zero if you got to do it for free, you roll two dice on two tables of your choice and apply both results to make an artifact that has both those special rules or influences. If you spent two, two requisition points, you roll four dice, one for each table, and just make a super artifact that has four abilities. Nice. Right, and th and that that's the extent of it. So, um, we'll go through the tables in a second, but um, yeah, for each requisition spent point spent, you can roll up to two d six um, on each of the tables. Um, make a note of the Archaeotech Curiosity on the Crusade card and add one to your Crusade total, or plus two if you roll three or more dice. This upgrade is permanent to this unit and cannot be removed or changed. Cool. Uh, um, shall we, shall we roll one? We will. So, uh, just to let you know, the four tables in question are weapon augmentations, physical augmentations, action augmentations, or psychic augmentations. Ooh. Now, notably, rogue traders do not innately have the ability to be psychers. No. That doesn't mean they couldn't potentially become one. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, go on. Uh, do you want to give us uh, two uh, regular relics and then one super awesome one? Go on then. So I'm rolling uh, 2d6 on one of the tables. Well, you get to pick. So first of all, for your first one, what would you like as your two tables? Uh, Between weapons, physical, action, or psychic augments? Let's have uh, weapons and, and weapon and physical. Fair enough. So give me your weapon roll. Uh, okay. Hold on. Okay. I have a, a roll. It's a two. So you have a fret tracker. Each time an enemy unit declares a charge against a friendly unit within six inches of this model, unless this model is within engagement range of any enemy models, this model can fire overwatch at the charging unit as if it was also the target of the charge. And this is in addition to any other units that are firing overwatch. So basically, cool. you get the greater good. Nice. And in addition to that, what else would you have? Uh, a one. Uh, you would also, so for physical augmentations, have a rigid, rigidity amplifier. 
This adds one to armor saving for us made for this model. Not plus one for charisma checks, as you might expect. <laughs> uh, so, should we then roll up a second artifact for a psychic and action augmentation? I think so. Yeah, so, so that first one was a rogue trader with plus one saving throw and the ability to overwatch at other yeah. units being charged. <laughs> so, uh, on the action table, a three. A Gravatic Amplifier. While a friendly unit is wholly within six inches of this model, each time an enemy unit declares that unit as the target of a charge, subtract one from the charge roll. Cool. So, keep back. That's pretty useful. And mm -hmm. L Psychic. A six. Warp Aegis. In the Psychic phase, each time this model would lose a wound as a result of a mortal wound, on a, uh, on a D6 roll of four plus, that wound is not lost. Okay, okay. That so would be really useful if it also had a psychic power. Uh, well, it means uh, it's in each psychic phase, so it includes yes. your opponents. So, so if you get blasted yeah. by opposing psychic powers, if you're if you're getting smitten, for instance, mm -hmm. so you're not getting charged and you're not getting smote. Okay. So then, shall we make one super augment that I think so. all four bonuses to your rogue trader? Right, here we go. Uh, one, two, two, three. One, two, two, three. Yep, that's fine, we'll go with that. So, weapon augment, weapon augment, macro anatomy scanner. Each time this model makes an attack against a monster unit, reroll a wound roll of one. Okay. Uh, physical augmentations was an authority amplifier. Add three inches to the range of the bearer's aura abilities to a maximum of nine inch. Okay. Which again, innately, I don't think the rogue traders have any natural aura abilities, but uh, I think they might have Plus, an aura that only affects their um, their like men, armsmen yeah. crew. But then again, this could also apply to any aura abilities you have from crusade relics that they've acquired. True. Uh, psychic augmentation, warp conduit. If this model is not a psyker. This model can attempt to manifest one psychic power in your psychic phase as if it were a psychic. Hey. Um, it basically manifests might on a single d6. That's um, oh. what it would do. <laughs> which is 5 plus, you know, for your initial cast. I mean, it is yeah, it's alright. When you cast it. If this model is already a psychic, in each of your psychic phases, this model can attempt to manifest one additional psychic power. Nice. Uh, and finally, the third one uh, rolls again because you got the uh, grav amplifier again. So let's see what your other augment, your other action augment would be. Um, um, a five. Uh, <laughs> a magnificence projector. Okay. Each time a melee attack is made against this model, subtract one from that attack's hit roll. So a big blinding light. Does that all sound like very fun augmentations for your rogue trader, who notably could gain multiple um, Archaeotech curiosities over time? Yes, it sounds very fun. I want it. Yeah. Now, here's the real fun part. Oh. There is more, and this is why any Imperial Order of Battle could entertain the idea of bringing along a rogue trader. Okay, go for because it. Because the other requisition they have available to them is dealer in exquisite goods. Two requisition points. Purchase this requisition at any time. 
Select one unit from your order of battle that has any relics or crusade relics. Select one of these relics and remove it from that unit's crusade card, even though relics cannot normally be removed. If you remove the relic, you can replace it with another relic available to that unit. If you remove the crusade relic, you can instead replace it with an Archaeotech Curiosity from the list opposite. Rolling 2d6 if you are replacing an Artificer Relic, 3d6 if you're replacing an Antiquity Relic, or 4d6 if you're replacing a Legendary Relic. Oh, So you can end up providing one of these Archaeotech Curiosities to any character in any Imperial Army. Because the Rogue Trader exchanges it for whatever Crusade Relic they had previously gained. (laughs) Now... The, the Rogue Trader doesn't gain the Crusade Relic himself. It's not a straight swap. You effectively lose whatever Crusade Relic yeah. it was because the Rogue Trader sells it on on the black market, presumably. But it means you could take your, your Tech Priest Dominus and he could end up becoming a Psyker. He could end <laughs> up having having stat line increases. He could end up with increased range to weapons or the ability to deal mortal wounds or enhancements. You know... All sorts of things. There's, say, 36 different potential abilities, auras, and stat line increases here, which could make their way to any Imperial character. Yeah, that's mad. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so, just in case your Archaeotech Relic weaponry wasn't enough that you've constructed, like, your Archmagos now could effectively be acquiring Crusade Relics to carry around on his person while constructing Adeptus Mechanicus Archaeotech Wonders while also commissioning a rogue trader to go acquire Xenotech Curiosities and he could just hoard them all. <laughs> yeah. Could use the badges like so this is this is my uh, this is my character. He's got a relic, a crusade relic, an archaeotech wonder and an archaeotech curiosity. <laughs> before I get into what weapons he has. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. I need to play some Crusade games with my Ad and, uh, yeah, And your Rogue Trader. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And I, I think that is a pretty unique way of uh, being able to bling out your Imperial characters. I think yeah. it's a really unique concept where like I say any Imperial Crusade Force could include these rogue traders and they could start trying to hand out these curiosities that they've acquired yeah that would be quite fun to uh, yeah beef up some like guard characters or something or you know space marines or whatever (laughs) custodians (laughs) yeah so yeah crazy all right if there is any other race out there that knows how to customize and bling up their crusade gear then if it's not the road traders it has to be the orcs because the other thing that has been brought now to the crusade rules for orcs is looted vehicles now these have seen varied use and rule sets in past in years past um, I think they were a White Dwarf publication, then they became yep. a Chapter Approved publication, and now they are a Crusade 
publication. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's funny because not a great deal has actually changed in those recent years in that these are a sort of like you free categories of vehicle with various ranges of weapons that can be added to them with then the sort of unique do random thing button um and they have power level um values assigned to them so they're not match play viable not without some you know um house yeah. ruling cajoling to get them there um they are very much intended to be sort of like you know narrative play stuff and Previous to ninth edition, I think that's kind of left them out in the in the cold a little bit. You know, they've basically not yeah, really had you know much use case um, value to them really. So I know myself. Technically, I've built many looted wagons over the years. I mostly run them as battle wagon equivalents based yeah. on size, scale, and weaponry they're equipped with. There are, in fact, three categories of looted vehicles now, which basically includes looted wagons, looted heavy wagons, and battle fortresses, which equates to transport tank, gun tank, and super heavy tank. Nice. (laughs) More or less. Um, But I do actually think that in the Crusade format, as they're presented here for Orcs on Crusade, I think there's some fresh life that's been breathed into them. And I have to admit, for the first time in a long time, I'm actually tempted by the idea of really getting some of these and playing them as looted wagons. Yeah. So, the whole concept of how this works is there is now a new mech job option available for you to expend your scrap points on as orcs. Yep. Uh, We called it. Yep. (laughs) So, like with virulence points for Death Guard... When we were reviewing the Oxen Crusade, I thought, you know what, scrap points seem like a really elegant system for them to include future use cases for these resources. And the looted vehicles are exactly that. So, um, basically, there's three base costs in scrap points to build a looted wagon, heavy wagon, or battle fortress, being six scrap points, eight scrap points, and 16 scrap points, respectively. And in the data sheet for them, basically have um, weapon loadouts and options available to them which in a standard data sheet would say plus X power level you know to take this option yeah whereas on these it says plus X scrap points <laughs> to take these so nice. you've got your, your cumulative upfront cost to build your looted wagon and when you've got the required scrap points to do so you just add it to your order of battle you know and with it's a a re- relevant power level and crusade value assuming yeah. you have enough um, supply limit to include it because obviously yeah. this is something getting added to your order of battle via a racial resource not your supply limit but I think it's actually a really great aspirational goal to use your scrap points on <laughs> rather I mean, than just yeah. applying your custom jobs and repairing your vehicles in my case me personally I really like the idea of actually trying to accumulate enough scrap points to build me a battle fortress and get myself yes. a looted bane blade. Uh, I mean, any excuse, right? Um, yeah, any excuse. I mean, as we know, so, you can accumulate them quite quickly if you pick the right agenda and play against lots of vehicles, right? Yeah, or even not so in the case of certain agendas, like as in mm. not needing to play against vehicles. 
but yeah, like you can build up scrap pretty quickly. And just to give you a sort of quick brief rundown, um, basically the looted wagon is like say your transport vehicle equivalent, where it's a vehicle of movement twelve, toughness seven, ten wounds, or four plus save, and can be equipped with up to two of the following: big shooter or a scorcher, i.e. Heavy Bolter or Heavy Flamer on that Chimera. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and amusingly, this model can be equipped with up to six shooters. Huh. I.e. like the yeah. LAS guns on the back of the Chimera. Nice. <laughs> or, if you say it had four of them, the equivalent of two Storm Bolters on a Rhino. Mm. Like, you can see where the parallels are being drawn. Whatever Imperial or other race uh, vehicle you want to loot, like, four shooters could easily be two looted um, gun drones on a devilfish. <laughs> big, big shooter could be um, a burst cannon, and so on. Like, there's some nice equivalents to troop transport vehicles here. Um, so if you wanted, you know, a Chimera, as it were, with a big shooter and six shooters, that would be two extra scrap points, so it would cost you eight scrap points to okay. include a looted Chimera in your Orc army. Nice. Um... They can transport up to 10 flash gates or infantry models. Each mega armor and jump model counts as two. Um, it has, here we go, ramshackle, wah, explodes, all the usual stuff. It also yeah. then has the custom red button, which all the looted vehicles have, and they all have slightly subtly different tables. In the case of the looted wagon, uh, once per battle at the start of your command phase you can select for the driver to hit the inviting mysterious red button mounted on his dashboard <laughs> when you do so roll 1d6 and consult the table below uh, on a 1 it's a snack dispenser a hidden compartment delivers the driver a tasty grilled squig but no additional effect oh I love it uh, 2 to 3 is a booster uh, it gets plus 4 inches of movement to the next command phase on a 5 to 6, more DACA, um, each range attack on a uh, unmodified hit roll of a 6 is additional hit. And on a 6, it's got some hidden rockets, and until your next command phase, this model is equipped with one rocket launcher. Nice. <laughs> you mean hunter-killer missile? Yeah, hunter-killer missile, exactly. Great. Then you move up to your looted heavy wagon, which is basically your Lehman Russ equivalent. Slash Predator, slash Vindicator, you know, slash whatever, yeah. some sort of heavy gun tank, because it's, you know, toughness 7, 12 wounds, 3 plus save. Although, if it was a Lehman Rust these days, it should have a 2 plus, but you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, can be equipped with um, up to one kill cannon or lobber or zap gun. Um, can replace its big shooter with a rocket launcher or scorcher can be equipped with up to two of the following, i.e. Sponsoon weapons, mm -hmm. big shooters, rocket launchers, or scorchers. Nice. Similarly, it has all the usual rules, here we go, ramshackle, blah blah blah, and has a equally custom big red button, once per battle, you can roll. It also has boosters and Mordaka on two to threes and four to fives, but on a one, it has shouty speakers. A hidden <laughs> sound system starts blaring discordant music for the crew, but no other effect. <laughs> okay. And on a six, it actually has force fields. Until your next command phase, this model has a fire pin button. Fair enough. And then finally, for your base 16 scrap points, plus many more scrap points in options, you have the yeah. Battle Fortress. I.e., your looted Baneblade, 
slash um, Atreus slash whatever other super heavy you want. Yeah. <laughs> that isn't a walker variety. <laughs> um, so again, toughness 8, 26 wounds, 3 plus save. Comes base equipped with a big shooter, a death cannon, a kill cannon, a twin big shooter, and crushing tracks. Which I think is literally the same name as the weapon that the Bane Blade has, except that this is yeah. spelt with a K. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, it's basically got an auto cannon, a demolisher cannon, a Bane Blade cannon, and a and a twin heavy bolter. Yeah. Equivalent. Um and then it can replace its death cannon with a super gatler, and if it does, it gains a transport capacity of twenty flash kits or infantry models. Oh, so now it's a um... Stormlord? A Shadow Sword. Stormlord, yeah, sorry. Yeah, a Stormlord. Um, this model can... Uh, a kill cannon can be replaced with a lobber or a twin big shooter or a zapper gun, i.e. a Laz cannon. Yeah. Um, they can have up to two rocket launchers or big shooters or scorchers. And then my favourite thing, the thing that absolutely gives away the fact that this is undeniably a Bane Blade as opposed to any other sort of super heavy. Mm-hmm. This model can be equipped with up to four zap guns, i.e. las cannons. Huh. For each zap gun selected to using this option, this model must be equipped with one of the following. One twin big shooter or one twin scorcher. Nice. So this is your full yeah. <laughs> heavy bolter las cannon sponsoon mount that you get on the bin. Nice. <laughs> and equally... As here we go and wah, but not ramshackle because it's a lord of war it's big. vehicle. It's yeah. big and it's built too well, apparently. Yeah. Um, it has a massive explosion when it dies, if it explodes. It's unstoppable. It can declare charges in the turn it fell back. And it also has a custom red button. Oh, and it does have the titanic keyword, as to be expected. But it's custom red button. It's on a one, it has screen wipers. Flexible scrapers <laughs> deployed to clean the accumulated dirt and gore from the vision ports, <laughs> but no other effect. Nice. On a 2 to 3, until your next command phase, add 3 inches movement characteristic for boosters. On a 4 to 5, it has extra spikes. Um, after this model makes a charge move, roll 1d6 for each enemy unit within, four in, uh, within engagement range. On a 4 plus, it suffers d3 mortal wounds. And on a 6, it has more DACA, where all those guns it has have exploding 6s. <laughs> Yes. Mm. Big old rooted tank. So that's the goal, is it? That is the goal. I think approximately, if you wanted to take all the various weapon loadouts and which you do and everything, yeah, you're going to be looking at uh, twenty plus um, scrap points to build yeah. this thing, and need um, about twenty power levels worth of space in your order of battle. <laughs> yeah. Well, get on it then. <laughs> but the real fun part about it is that it does mean that once you've built it you can then also put a custom job on it specifically a fortress upgrade I'm thinking which we uh, can actually yeah. get a Bane Blade with an inbun nice <laughs> so yeah like if you've got a collection of looted vehicles and you want to actually field them as looted vehicles you can start including them in your crusade forces purely for your scrap points without having to actually spend requisition points on it, as it were. Kind of. Um, but, really, I think 
for me personally at least the concept of building a battle fortress is kind of almost like the ultimate goal here like it is cool acquiring enough scrap to build myself a custom lord of war looted bane blade and just to give me motivation and reason to do so in real life and actually get myself a looted bane blade i think he's just great I, i think it's a brilliant idea to just give some goal to your crusade yeah, I and think you know for well, I will make space on top of it for Zagtrek to stand. <laughs> nice. So yes, that is everything from Warzone Octarius. And it was a lot. But it is a lot of good stuff. And um, yeah, I, I think it's funny how this has actually got a lot of extra stuff in it for those races and armies that are going to benefit from it like i do think there's a lot of cool stuff in here for orcs i think the road trader stuff is particularly interesting for any imperial crusade forces and i think the campaign system with the legendary missions is actually a really unique example of matched play campaigns yeah um it's it's got some interesting stuff in here if any single part of that entices you and sounds like it's something you'd be interested in I'd suggest picking this one up. I think it's actually, I think it's also the cheapest of the campaign supplements to date. I'm not sure, but I think it was a little bit cheaper than the others. Yeah, they did start quite expensive, but I think they've, uh, uh, more recent ones have been lowered in price slightly because, um, mm. presumably, because people didn't buy them as much as they wanted. <laughs> but I think there's good stuff in there. Like, yeah. if, you've, if you're playing Orcs, if you want to play a match play campaign system, have it pre-built for you. If you want to loot some vehicles or get some rogue traders in your Imperial forces, then go for it. It's great. Especially if you play Blood Axes as well, because <laughs> there's obviously <laughs> a codex supplement in there. But yeah. Um Speedwars, all sorts. A lot of stuff in there that I think is uh, great for narrative play. That has been a long one. I think we have indeed reached a critical mass of time for this episode. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you and so, your critical um, mass. Yeah. I think we will just bolt on our community spotlights at the end because it's just going to be a very quick rundown. Yep. So, um, Dan, what have you got for us this week? Cool. Uh, I've been enjoying um, Archon Skari's Crusade content. Uh, that's um, he, He's mainly known for sort of competitive type stuff and, and as you might have guessed by the name, if you don't know him, playing uh, Drukari a lot. Um, uh, his, he, his goes by Scardcast on YouTube and various other places. He's all over the place. He does lots of podcasts and things like that, appearances. Um, but I, I was... I recently have been watching some of his Crusade videos. He's been doing a Crusade series called uh, The Rise of a Cabal, which is what it sounds like he's been following a little uh, Drakari Crusade force through several games uh, against various different opponents. Uh, so it's pretty cool. I like it. Go watch that. That's interesting. Yeah, I can say I've not seen much content um, for like tracking the advancement of a campaign, a Crusade campaign being played by an individual. So yeah, I've heard of Skari myself and I've, I've watched mm-hmm. some of his stuff, um, especially when he's been like a guest appearing on other things. But I know that you're right. Typically, he's been known for competitive 
circles of Drakari, yeah. but if he's got some cool Crusade content, I also can imagine he's going to be a great exemplar of that as well, because I know he is yeah. very much invested in the the lore and the background of Drakari, so I can see him doing it justice. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah. And then finally for myself, um, funnily enough, I actually got a suggestion directly from Spotify just yesterday <laughs> for what to talk about tonight. Because being the end of the year now, Spotify has decided to tell me, hey, hey, did you know you've listened to a lot of podcasts this year? <laughs> like, yes, Spotify, I did, thanks. Well, here's your top five. <laughs> so, personally recommended from my own playlists for 2021, my five top 40k podcasts, or rather, my top five podcasts for everything, but being me, of course, it is all 40k <laughs> stuff. Nice. So go check out any and all of the following. We have my number one spot, the Lawhammer podcast, with uh, 50 plus episodes listened to this year. (laughs) Wow. Um, And a lot of hours, since they're all about three to four hours each. The the Lookout Sir Warhammer 40k podcast is in at number two. They got a shout out earlier for their coverage on the Rogue Traders, but also one I've been enjoying a lot of recently. Weekly content, big episodes. Uh, Great guys. Number three, Forged a Narrative. So Paul Murphy himself and uh, his regular weekly hour-long episodes on everything 40k. Another good show. Number four, my personal favourite, but is in number four simply because it doesn't match up to the sheer <laughs> volume of hours that the others put yep. out, is the 40k Badcast. I oh. love the 40k Badcast. It is brilliant. It, it's It's almost like social satire and commentary. Like it's that level of like humor, um, okay, and it's really like good-hearted, um, like hilarious forty k content. It's sort of like half comedy skit, like forty k show, okay. Um, doesn't take itself too seriously, but is also like you know a lot of like forty k current affairs, basically. Nice, um, seeing through the view of uh, people who just don't. They, they like to poke fun at the seriousness that some other people can take to this game. <laughs> oh, yes. in a good-hearted way. Yes, that is definitely a thing. Yeah. Dan and Campbell are great. Uh, in fact, Dan has also um, guest appeared on Sum City Radio before, and he writes uh, many of the um, Necromunda columns on Goonhammer. Um, and then Campbell's painting stuff is just brilliant. His Ultramarines and Black Templars and all sorts are uh, I wonder. So yeah, go check them out. And then finally, number five for me this year was the Adaptus Terror podcast, which is actually sort of my almost like heresy 30k guilty pleasure. Like <laughs> I don't follow a lot of um, 30k stuff, but they they do a mix of both 40k and 30k. But their like personal hobby time is spent more with um, heresy stuff, and they do like some book reviews as well, as in like Black Library book reviews. Um, from both uh, 40k and 30k so yeah, they're sort of my touchstone with heresy stuff in the community and uh, yeah, I really enjoy those cool. so that's I, what I've spent my year listening to I guess they've been talking quite a lot about Siege of Terror recently uh, funnily enough, no, I think oh. um, they've <laughs> taken to the I think they've taken to the opinion of they're letting it play out and giving people time to enjoy it in their own time before starting to do spoiler, you know, reviews and stuff of it. Okay. Rather than like, what hot came out this week? Here's everything in it that happens. <laughs> you know. 
Because <laughs> most people probably won't have read it that quickly. So yeah, go check them out. I think that is everything for tonight. So I have a, a cat yeah. fussing me for attention. Yeah. So I think we'll go deal with Amazing. that. Amazing. So, uh, thanks again for joining me tonight, Dan. That's all right. I appreciate it. It's been a bit of a me talking at you episode, but I think um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to me break down the book for you as much as for the listeners. I have enjoyed listening to you break down <laughs> the book. Yes. Right then. Until next time, guys. This has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k. Bye.